So what are we going to talk about? European breakfast pastries, right? I mean, <laughs> okay. What else did we talk about with a Berliner? Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Code Climate automated code reviews ensure that your projects stay on track. Fix and find quality and security issues in your Ruby code sooner. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 127 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. Katrina Owen. Good morning. Avdi Grimm. Good morning. Josh Susser. Generic greeting. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv with a quick reminder to go check out my free freelancing video at goingrogvideo.com. And we have a special guest this week, and that is Eric Michael Zober. Guten Tag. <laughs> Guten Tag. Hey, Eric. Hey, Welcome how's it going? On. Good. Welcome aboard the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, you sound very German this morning. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm detecting some uh, a German accent in the line noise. What's going on with that? <laughs> so, where are you, Eric? I'm in Berlin. I recently moved to Berlin from San Francisco about three months ago. And uh, yeah, it's great. I'm uh, working at SoundCloud now as a developer evangelist. Oh, developer nice. evangelist. So, so what does that mean, actually? Because that's, that's the kind of position that seems like that's different in different places. It is. So uh, SoundCloud, for those who don't know, is the largest community of musicians uh, and also podcasters uh, on the web. And uh, being a dev evangelist is basically... It basically means I work on providing a great platform for developers to build any sort of audio-related applications. So I do quite a bit of travel to conferences and hackathons showing people how they can use the SoundCloud platform to create new applications and to make their existing applications even better with sound. That sounds awesome. I'm going to break in real quick because uh, I'm a horrible person. I got reminded three different times and I still forgot. Um, we have another unofficial rogue, and I just want to, uh, again, thank... Thank them for supporting the show. An unofficial rogue is somebody who joins the parlay list and uh, contributes $50 a month to the show. And uh, last week, Emily Stolfo signed up as an unofficial rogue. So, yay! Thank, yay. thank you. <laughs> Emily is actually super awesome. It's like, you know, she gets to be part of parlay for free because she's going to be a guest on the show soon. And she's like, no, I'm paying for it anyway. So, above and beyond, definitely. So, Emily. thank you for supporting my bourbon heaven. I mean, all the great things we do on Ruby Rogues. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you yeah. for supporting Avdi's bourbon habit. Oh, yeah. no. Um... Avdi, your bourbon habit is one of the great things we do on Ruby Rogues. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to your regularly scheduled, Eric. What are you doing today? So, the reason we had Eric on the show is back in ancient history we ran this uh, ruby rogues golf contest and uh, we said that we would have the winner on the show we didn't say you know plus or minus three years but uh we're keeping good on our promise eric won we'll put a link to that tweet in the show notes i think yeah. i get 
bonus points. I'm, I'm, I was actually in Hawaii when I tweeted that, so I could have been out on the beach sipping a Mai Tai, but instead I was, for some reason, doing code golf for Ruby Rogues. So I think I get uh, extra credit for that. That's awesome. I just looked at the tweet and it is actually geocoded in Hawaii, which is cool. <laughs> so you were in Hawaii and your submission wasn't the shark attack one? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I guess, uh, I should have been, been more creative there. I, I think more people travel to Hawaii to play golf than to be eaten by sharks. So I think it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> I did survive, made it, made it back to the mainland safely. So tell us what you uh, did in your golf tweet, Eric. Yeah, so it's a little bit hard to read. Uh, and if you want to see the expanded version, it's actually <laughs> included. I'm, I'm sorry. It's like, <laughs> as, as these things tend to be, I guess. Readabot- apologizing for the readability of your golf is like you know, apologizing <laughs> for your pretzels being salty. <laughs> did you write um, a minifier well, actually, first? Uh, I didn't. There's actually an expanded version of... Uh, of the tweet that's actually embedded in one of the projects I work on, which is the Twitter gem. So if you go to github.com slash sfrx slash Twitter, in the Etsy directory of that project, uh, is basically code that does essentially the same thing, but in a, in a way that's more readable. But basically what it does is it creates a graph in the dot language, which is a graph, graph language. And basically, uh, it's a graph of the Ruby object system. So it uses Ruby's object space object and iterates over every class and then shows the relationships between those classes. So sort of which classes inherit from which other classes and basically draws a map so you can see the whole object system in Ruby. Yeah, the, the, being able to see the whole object hierarchy like that is actually really awesome and it's one of the things that I always miss in the Ruby documentation is that you can't easily see the inheritance relationships in classes. So this is actually useful. Yeah, well, you can. It's just 140 characters of... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, Josh? There's that one textual line that says inherits from or... <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Yeah, sh- yeah sure. And, and, and that's totally sufficient. Yeah. Graphical it's user interface. all you need. Come on. <laughs> No, this was really cool. There was a, I do remember there was an oddity, like there were certain versions of GraphBiz that complained about the way it generated the output or something. So like you had to have the right version or you had to modify it slightly to change the output was I think one of the issues when it came out. Because I remember having to fiddle with it a bit before I got it to work. But once I did get it to work and it popped up the screen of the entire graph and stuff, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the version that's embedded in the Twitter gem is, uh, I think I cheated a little bit. So I actually, there's the dot language requires you to have a, a trailing bracket at the end, curly bracket, uh, to sort of close your graph. But uh, the version of graph as I was using at least worked if you omitted that and... I wasn't able to squeeze it in uh, to the 140 characters, so I left that off. But D- didn't, I guess didn't other I school- newer versions of GraphViz are a bit stricter and maybe wouldn't parse that graph. Didn't I figure out a way to make this have enough room for that? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's right. We were chatting about it after I submitted it, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it could be better. But yeah, it's kind of golf is just terrible code anyway. But the the version that's in the Twitter gem, I would actually recommend. Uh, it's it's really useful code. So 
the version in the Twitter gem is modified slightly so that it shows uh, not the entire object system, the entire object hierarchy of the Ruby language, but just the object hierarchy of that Twitter colon colon namespace. And so you can just see the object graph for that library. And the code, uh, it's basically, you can just put in whatever namespace you want for any gem and see the object hierarchy for that particular gem or, or library. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd invite anyone, it's MIT licensed, and you're free to, to take this and use that little snippet in your li library to generate graphical representation of uh, the objects that you use. And to me, I, I think like when I'm using a new library or looking at a new project, I really like to see that just to kind of quickly at a glance understand the design of the system and sort of get a sense of how complex it is and, and the different objects and how they relate to each other and work with each other. Oh, okay, so I'm looking at the uh, code in the Twitter gem for doing this, and it's like 50 lines of code as opposed to 140 characters. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I actually find the 140 character version uh, actually more readable. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, it's interesting. So uh, one sort of interesting constraint of doing a longer version of this is that I couldn't use any objects because if I created an object while generating this graph, it would sort of pollute the graph itself because it's a graph of all the objects. That's awesome. And, Good and point. And so I basically, I had to write basically completely non-object oriented code to do it. So I, I agree. It's a bit, the code to do it is a bit ugly, but it sort of has to be. That's a really neat point. I like mm -hmm. it. So we've been talking a lot about this, but let's actually get into it. Eric, you maintain, uh, I would argue, two really cool gems for kind of the interface to Twitter uh, in Ruby. Um, why don't you tell us uh, how you got into that and, and why you do that? Yeah, so I guess it started, I don't know, maybe back in 2008 or so. And John Nunemaker created uh, this gem called the Twitter gem. And I was using it at the time. I was co-founder and CTO of a company, little startup in San Francisco that's still around called 140 Proof. And we were doing a bunch of Twitter analytics, building all these apps using the Twitter API. And the gem uh, that John created was not, uh, it was missing a few features that I wanted and uh, contributed a few patches to it and just kind of went down that rabbit hole of switching over the whole way it basically communicated with HTTP. At the time, it was using... Uh, I think it was using uh, HTTP party or HTT party. And I switched that over to using Faraday. And then I started contributing to Faraday. And yeah, it just sort of went down. It, it was sort of like my entry into open source. I had done a bit of open source before that. But uh, this really just got me working on a bunch of different projects related to JSON parsing, uh, HTTP wrapper APIs, and um, yeah, like specifically doing things with the Twitter gem. And originally, in, in a very early version of the Twitter gem, it had a command line interface built into it. So it was both an API client for doing sort of general things with the Twitter API, but also for hacking on the command line with Twitter. And in version 0.5 of the gem, before I started working on it, John Nunemaker ripped that out and sort of said, this should really be a separate, separate library. But he never actually made that a separate library. And so I ended up doing that couple of years down the road, and that's called T. Uh, and it's basically just the command line interface to Twitter. So yeah, you can use Twitter data with pipes. It has, uh, it has an option to export the data as CSV. Thank you, James. So uh, yeah, I think basically people use that for like archiving tweets or storing sort of personal 
collections of them because Twitter itself uh, used to not be so good at that. Now I guess it's a little bit better. But uh, the, the main thing people use it for is to search through old tweets because Twitter's search functionality, their index only goes, about, uh, only goes back uh, about a week or two. And the way the T-Jam works is it will basically get all of the, all of the tweets that uh, a user has tweeted or all of the tweets in your timeline using the API and then search through just that set. So it's a little bit slower, but it's much more comprehensive and it's actually pretty fast for, for what it's doing. I, I've used it for doing management of lists on Twitter. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's great for that. So, for example, if you want to take everyone who you're following at a specific point in time and add them to the list, you can, of course, create a list with the T CLI, um, and then you can basically say T following, uh, which will show you, list out all the people who you're following, and then uh, you can pipe that to T list add. And all of those people who you're following will be uh, added to a list. You say T list, add the name of the list, and then the pipe will give as input to that command all of the people who you're following. And so, yeah, if you want to make a list, let's say you're following 300 people, uh, to do that manually would be quite laborious. And T gives you a, a quick way to do it. It's a cool, that's what's awesome about the gem, I think, is that you can pull data out of there and really easily pipe it into something else. Yeah, it's designed to basically be like a Unix utility, so it sort of will work smartly with pipes and redirects and things like that. I'm a little curious how you wind up making the transition from, oh, here are a few patches for things that help me out to maintaining the gem. Did uh, I mean it's basically of the torch or something? Or uh, it was basically just a giant yak shave. I mean, I think I just started started working on it, and then. I was like, oh, I should improve the documentation. And so I wrote all this yard documentation and then just started refactoring things until I was kind of the, the main committer on it. And John Nunemaker, he started a lot of great projects. And I think he was just sort of busy working on something else like Mongo Mapper at the time sort of caught his attention and he wasn't really maintaining it anymore. So actually, Win Netherland, who also works at GitHub now with John, the two of us were maintaining it for a while and... Then Wynn sort of stopped maintaining it and, and started working on some other things. So I just kind of became the de facto maintainer of that. It's had a number of uh, sort of maintainers and contributors across its lifetime. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a true open source project in that way, I guess. So it's great. It's benefited from the contributions of many people. That's really cool. Oh, I, I'm also curious, uh, as far as Twitter goes, how often do they change their API and how much work is it for you usually when they do that? It's a good question. They used to change it a lot more than they do now. Uh, the Twitter product and sort of feature set has stabilized a lot over the years. But back in sort of 2006, 2007, 2008, you know, they were adding new features to the product all the time and adding new APIs for that all the time. Um, and one thing that was sort of cool is that Twitter uh, as a company would often release APIs for things before those features even existed in the product. They don't really do that anymore. And now, unfortunately, there's some features in the product for which there are no APIs, which is a little disappointing. But yeah, I mean, it, it used to be changing and all the time. But yeah, now it's pretty stable. Twitter API version 1.1, which was released, I don't know, maybe 9, 12 months ago, something like that. I don't want to say that's like the final version of the Twitter API, but I think that sort of like represents a pretty solid foundation of like what the, what the Twitter API is and what Twitter is. And unless Twitter becomes something fundamentally different, I don't expect the API to be changing too much going forward. 
What's the most challenging aspect of maintaining a big popular project like the Twitter gem? I don't know. I mean, to me, I love it. Like people use it all the time. And because it's a Twitter related library, they're always, they're always sort of tweeting at me and like telling me like how much they like it or if there's a bug, whatever, like I'll normally find out on Twitter, but it's actually like great. I get to get that sort of instantaneous feedback from people on Twitter about the library. And yeah, I would say it's like pretty stable now. So there's occasionally bugs, but I would say in general, like people are pretty happy with it. So one of the biggest challenges, I guess, is is making it work across multiple Ruby implementations. And uh, Travis is something that makes that really easy. And I test the Twitter gem across uh, Rubinius and JRuby and would like to test it across uh, on things like Topaz as well. To me, that's uh, there's a lot of really exciting things happening in this sort of alternative Ruby implementation space. And so, uh, yeah, I'd... I'd uh, to me, like that's something I'm just very conscious of. But honestly, I wouldn't call that a challenge either. Like those projects have come a really long way uh, since when I started testing on them. And now, generally, if if something if the tests pass on MRI, they'll almost always just automatically pass on JRuby and Rubinius, and I don't really have to do anything. The only thing to look out for is gems that have C extensions, and make sure I don't depend on. Uh, on any of those because they don't work that they don't play that well with JRuby in particular. So do you spend a lot of your time on on other open source projects these days? Yeah, I do. I do a lot of open source stuff. So probably the most famous uh, or popular project that I work on is Rails Admin. And um, I've also done quite a bit of work on Thor, which is a tool set for generating command line interfaces. I love Thor. I've used it yeah, a so, ton. Yeah. So Thor, it's it's like the most. I would say it's like the most popular software in the Ruby community that most people haven't heard of or really used. It <laughs> basically, um, like the command line interface for Rails. Like when you say Rails new, you're using Thor. Like that all depends on Thor. When you're using Bundler, when you say bundle or bundle update or whatever, that uh, Bundler is built on Thor. T, the command line interface for Twitter that we were just talking about, that's built using Thor. Um, so yeah, just sort of, again, down that rabbit hole, first worked on Twitter and then built this Twitter command line interface on top of Thor and then started maintaining Thor uh, with Yehuda. He, uh, Yehuda Katz is sort of the main creator and maintainer of that. So, so yeah. that, the command line interfaces you're talking about here that Thor excels at is when you have like one command with a whole bunch of sub commands, kind of like Git, right? Git branch, git, git commit, et cetera. That's the kind of thing Thor kind of excels at, right? Yeah, it's particularly good at that. Yeah, like you can just use like ops parse, like Ruby has some things in the standard library to build command line interfaces. But yeah, just like you said, they're not so conducive for doing kind of complicated sub options and parsing out sub options and things like that, where that's what Thor is really designed to do to build systems that are sort of like Git. So in the Twitter CLI T, one example of that is you can say T delete, and then there's all these sub options for that. So you can delete a tweet, you can delete a direct message, you can delete a favorite, uh, you can delete a list, you can basically like unblock a user, like delete a block. And so uh, these are all sort of like sub commands under the T delete command. Um, That's and, an interesting like, organization. Like, I'm I'm a little surprised that it's T delete and then the thing versus T the thing and then delete. 
Not saying one's good, worse or better, just surprising. Yeah, to me, that was sort of like the logical design of the app because you're like, okay, I want to delete something and you can say like, T, delete. Like deleting a, a direct message, like as far as I know, that's only exposed by the API. There's no way to do it via the Twitter.com interface. But mm-hmm. sometimes you fire off a direct message to the wrong person or something like that and really want to delete it. And T right. is a, a really simple way to do that. So like the other example of that is T stream. So there's all these streaming, uh, streaming features. So you can T stream a list. You can T stream a particular search. So you can say T stream search and then give it a keyword or a list of keywords. And then it'll show you every tweet in real time that's using those, those keywords, uh, or any, nice. anyone who mentions those, those keywords on Twitter. And then the other thing. So I've been pushing towards. The version five of the Twitter gem that's currently, I have a release candidate one out and should be shipping RC2 any day now. Uh, and basically version five builds in streaming. So previously you had to use two separate gems if you wanted to talk to the Twitter rest API and the Twitter streaming API. But in version five, that'll all be built into the Twitter gem. And the previous, I think all the previous streaming gems for Twitter depended on event machine. Which I didn't want to build in because, like, that's it just seemed like too heavy of a, a dependency. But I've been able to implement Twitter streaming in version 5.0 without, uh, without depending on Event Machine. So, how, how'd you do that, Eric? It was a lot of work, actually, and I can't take credit for, for all of it. Uh, so, I actually got a lot of help from a few people. Uh, Steve uh, Agalaco uh, wrote the majority of the code. But he sort of wrote it in a standalone uh, gist. And so I basically took the, the code that he wrote. He's the one who works on TweetStream, which is one of the event machine-based streaming, uh, Twitter streaming clients. And uh, he's also done a bunch of work on, uh, on the Twitter gem itself. And so he's familiar with it. And TweetStream depends on Twitter and uses Twitter objects. So uh, when you get an object back, from TweetStream, it's a Twitter object from the Twitter gem, so you can sort of use those interchangeably. Uh, so it really made sense for it all to to be in one gem, and, and Steve did most of the work on that. I just sort of merged it into the project. Um, and I also got a, a ton of help from uh, Tim Carey-Smith and Tony Arcieri, who both work on Celluloid. Um, and originally I was actually, uh, I wanted to do async streaming, so you could like open up multiple streams at once, and I was using Celluloid for that, but kind of at the last minute, I reverted the celluloid dependency just because it was adding more complexity that I wanted. And I'm planning to add that back in a future version. But for the first version of streaming, it's basically just going to be blocking synchronous streaming. So you say, like, start streaming, and then it doesn't stop until you tell it to stop or kill the process. And then, um, but yeah, in the future, I'd like to basically be able to have streams implemented as futures using celluloid futures. Mm. So you can just kind of uh, spawn off a stream and then it'll keep streaming. Uh, you, you can have multiple streams running at once and they're not blocking. But uh, the interfaces for that were getting a bit complicated and the code was getting a bit much. So yeah, maybe that'll be in the 5.1 release, but 5.0 is going to be without celluloid. But anyway, those guys helped a lot on the on the implementation of it, even uh, sort of independent of celluloid. And I actually, uh, as, as part of that, I, I contributed a few patches to Tony's HTTP gem, which uh, is also worth looking into. I'm, I'm actually using right. that. So that has a nice HTTP request object uh, that I'm using in the Twitter gem. So even though celluloid's not a dependency, Tony's 
HTTP gem is, and I'm, I'm using uh, the request object there. Cool. So, Eric, you've, you've mentioned a couple times uh, dealing with dependencies on these open source projects. And dependency management is like one of the hardest things to deal with in software engineering. I'm curious, do you think that enough attention is paid to that when people are doing open source projects? Or is it always just, you know, a big mess? Yeah, or- it's, it's often a big mess. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. So I do deal with a lot of dependencies. And I, I didn't have this as one of my picks, but I'll recommend it now. Yehuda Katz wrote a, a great blog post called something like the greater than or equal to operator is considered harmful. And basically, yeah, like people should really understand the pessimistic version constraint uh, when they're building gems, gem authors in particular, and should use it for pr- runtime dependencies. For development dependencies, I actually think using greater than or equal to is fine. Because if something, if there's a new version of a development dependency, let's say a new version of RSpec that breaks your specs, um, it's not going to break anyone's code. It's just a development dependency. And you actually want to know, know about that sooner rather than later. But for runtime dependencies, it's really important, see, uh, Im- important to specify an upper limit uh, on your dependency. So you should either be using, if you use greater than or equal to, you should always use it with less than. And if you're using, uh, or otherwise just use the pessimistic version constraint, that's probably like the number one mistake I see in open source projects, Ruby open source projects, people misusing or not using the pessimistic version constraint in runtime dependencies. Okay. Do do you think that there's uh, still an issue with uh, semantic versioning versus something else? If a project doesn't use semantic versioning, I usually just go on their issue tracker and start screaming bloody murder. I mean, at this point, I just assume everyone's using it because uh, unless they like explicitly state that they're using a different versioning scheme, and yeah, because there's basically no responsible reason not to do to do semantic versioning. Yeah, I just that's like a really important best practice that everyone should follow, and by and large, most people do. Like most people, I think get that right but that only works like you know, the only benefit of having that is if people are using the pessimistic version constraint with uh semantic versioning so those things sort of go hand in hand so if they're not using semantic versioning i guess the best thing you could do is actually lock to a specific version of the gem and then choose I- to when you want to unlock i actually disagree i think if they're not using semantic versioning you should go basically on their issue tracker and complain that they're not using semantic versioning. There's, <laughs> there's almost never a good reason for it, and the world would be a much better place if they were using it. So like, it's a good opportunity to educate people about semantic versioning, and if they have a good reason for not using it, at the very least, they should be documenting that. And if some project, for whatever reason, doesn't want to use semantic versioning uh, and documents that, then sure, lock to a, a precise version or or use a version that makes sense given their versioning scheme. But I, I haven't run into, I, I work with a lot of gems and dependencies and have never really seen a great excuse for not using semantic versioning. The closest I've seen to some to a reason for not using it is if you have a gem that basically it tracks its versioning to another library. So let's say you have a gem that wraps some C library and you want your, um, like Git, for example, like if you wanted your versioning to match the match the versioning of whatever you're wrapping, like you're wrapping Git, so you want to have the same version as that, sometimes what they'll do is they'll do semantic versioning, but basically shifted down by a few dots. So 
they'll they'll have like more digits of precision and those extra digits of precision sort of represent the semantic part and the first two or three digits of precision are just a clone of like what version that library maps to uh, of like the main package that it that it wraps or interacts with but that's that's like the only good excuse not to use semantic versioning that I've seen and even that I think maybe that's not such a great reason I think you just about- told us how to gem install lynch mob or something <laughs> What about pre 1.0? Yeah, so semantic versioning actually has a policy on that. So um, basically, pre 1.0, you're not making any guarantees about the API. Uh, minor releases can have breaking API changes. So basically, my policy is I try not to depend on things that are pre 1.0 because, in general, you don't want to depend on things that are fragile. And based sort of by definition in semantic versioning, things that are pre 1.0 are fragile in that way. But sometimes there's a, a good reason for doing that. So if you can't encourage the, the developer to like lock down the API and release a 1.0, um, I'll just use the pessimistic version constraint with three digits of precision instead of two. And then for things that are above 1.0, I'll use the pessimistic version constraint with two digits of precision. And for people who don't know what the pessimistic version constraint is, it's the thing that's uh, it's a tilde and then a greater than sign. So it sort tad- of looks like a... Tadpole is my favorite uh, description for it. Yeah, yeah. It's sometimes uh, there's some other names. Twitter Walker. Yes. There's, there's some other names for it as well. Yeah, right. Um, the yeah, I think we had a whole thread on Parley about naming things like that a couple months ago. Um, even um, even Rails, who has been very yeah. resistant to the semantic versioning, even now in in recent versions, they're not yet moved to semantic versioning, but they're starting to get close to it, right? Is that how I would describe it? Yeah, and I think like a lot of big projects, like Ruby itself does not really use semantic versioning. They basically release a yeah. major version once every 20 years, and then uh, break <laughs> things in minor versions, I think is their policy. <laughs> Um, and, and like Linux, for example, I don't know if they still do this, but the kernel used to do something where odd numbers in the second digit, odd numbers were unstable and even numbers were stable. Yeah. Ruby was doing that for a while too. Yeah. Ruby, Ruby did something a little bit similar. So anyway, I think, uh, you know, unfortunately some of these big, big projects actually have good reasons to not follow semantic versioning, uh, or they came before semantic versioning really existed as a concept. So in that sense, they're not great role models to follow. But uh, if you're just building a gem, you're not building like an operating system kernel or a programming language, you should really follow semantic versioning. Okay, so when I asked about the the pre-1.0, I think um, what I was really getting at was talking to gem authors about when to make that transition to 1.0. I know it took Jim Wyrick, uh, you know, something like 15 years to get rigged huh. to be 10.0. <laughs> <laughs> you went from like 0.9 to 10.0. <laughs> uh, but, you know, semantic versioning sort of lets you off the hook for be- for having to maintain compatibility if you're pre-1.0. But I don't think that's an excuse to never go 1.0. I think, you know, or I don't think it's a reason. And I, th- I think that there are other good reasons to go 1.0 and to start uh, supporting version and uh, and promises about it. Totally. And I, I'm like a bit of a hypocrite on this. Like Thor, which I do a lot of work on, is not 1.0 yet. And obviously, like everyone has it in their gemfile.lock. Like it's used in production all over the place and it really should be 1.0. Um, and there's like, 
we've been talking about getting it to 1.0 for a while. It's currently 0.9. And um, yeah, like I wish I did a better job of practicing what I preached here. But in general, uh, I think Thor is sort of in that category of like big honking projects, sort of like Rake, that you really need to make sure the API, because Rails and Bundler and so many projects depend on it. Um, and if you're going to make a promise that you're never going to break the API, you really want to make sure it handles all the use cases you need it to and everything is right. So we just want to be really careful with that on Thor, but most gems don't don't have that problem. So I, I want to ask a question. I've got a couple of ideas for projects that I want to work on. And uh, so as I'm starting a new open source piece of software, what kinds of mistakes am I going to make as a new maintainer of a new project? I don't know. I mean, I guess I would say like the gem new command, or is that what it is? Gem or bundle new, I mean? Where it's sort of like bundle gem. Bundle gem. That's like a pretty good way to get started if if you're making a new gem. And yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of best practices that are sort of built into that. For example, it gives you a gem file, which is something that you should should use and should have uh, if you're developing a gem. And it gives you a gem spec, and it gives you uh, a README and a default license, and all these things that a lot of first-time gem authors don't think of or forget. I guess you need a gem spec. You couldn't forget that, or you wouldn't get very far. But <laughs> uh, but it gives you sort of a template for a gem spec, and it, it tells like sort of gives you all these blanks to fill in. So that's worth doing. But I guess a big mistake I mean I see is people just like cargo culting other gems. Like they'll just find some random gem in their gem file that they use and see how they do it, and a lot of bad practices sort of get distributed out that way. Uh, so yeah, I would say just like before you cargo cult another gem, like just think about why it is the way it is and maybe if there's a better way to do it or just look at like two or three different gems to see how they do it instead of just picking one and then like take the consensus of the three that you're looking at rather than just cargo culting one. Cargo cult three is my advice, I guess. Awesome. What about change logs? Change logs are great. I mean, they're a real pain to maintain. And I used to not have one for uh, the Twitter Jam and some of the other projects that I've worked on. And people really complained. And for me, I, I kind of, as a maintainer, like a change log is like the annoying, like when you have a release that's ready to go, you just want to ship it. Like you just want to be done with it and like put it out there. And a change log is like this one sort of laborious step of like going through every commit and figuring out like which ones are important enough to highlight in a change log and let people know about and sort of summarize the release. But so yeah, I was actually pretty resistant to doing that at first, but I've I've completely come around on that and have a maintain a change log on almost all of my projects and find them really valuable. Like when a new gem is released that I depend on or use, I always look at the change log. And if there's not a, a change log there, then I'm always disappointed by that. So yeah, I think change logs are great. And the, the hardest thing with a change log is just the right level of granularity. Like a change log that just is a list of all the commits between... Um, so my, my argument when people ask for a change log was basically that GitHub... I tag my releases and GitHub has a compare view. So if you want to see the difference between two versions of a gem, you can just say github.com slash maintainer slash project name slash compare and then like tag one, tag two. And it'll show you all the, uh, sorry, it's tag one, dot, 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 tag two. And that'll show you a really nice, like, summary. Uh, it'll show you, like, all the commits that change between those two versions. But if it's more than, let's say, five or ten commits, uh, that's actually probably more information than the person 
looking at the changelog wants. And really, they just want a summary of like the breaking interface changes and things that matter to them. They don't really care if you're refactoring or cleaning up white space or all these other sort of noisy commits. So yeah, I think having a proper changelog that where you go through and say like, okay, this, what, what do my users really care about? Let me highlight those changes. That's really a lot more valuable than just saying, here's a list of the 500 commits that changed. So would a changelog be important for something that is open source, but not a gem? Uh, could you give an example? Uh, I have a, an app that's open source, exorcism.io. Huh. And would people be looking for a changelog in that, for example? I think it's more important for gems because people specify gems for as dependencies, and so they want to know like what if an API changed, like what what changes they need to make. Um, for an app, it's more sort of for you and your personal record keeping. Like if you want to know when a, a change was made, you can sort of summarize that in a change log just for your own records. But I don't know. I find I'll normally just use Git log for that instead of opening up the the change log. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think one place where it is important for an app is if it's something like Redmine or, you know, some of these other projects where people are, you know, building off of them, forking them, deploying them to their own servers. Um, they're going to want to know what features have changed and what things are different in the new this, version. This course would be another good yeah. example. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if if you and a handful of other people are the only people using it, then it probably doesn't matter as much. Yeah. I have a I have a slightly different tack to take here. Uh Eric, I'm curious if you have amassed any sort of like um diagnostic signals that you use when you're evaluating open source projects. You know, it, you know, if there are warning signs that tell you that a project might be good to avoid, or if there are some signs that you look for that shows a project is healthy? Yeah, that's a great question. There there's a lot of things I look at. So one is actually the version stuff we were talking about earlier. So if it's not 1.0, I'm much more skeptical of depending on it because it means the API will likely break in the future. It means they haven't made any promises about the API. And so that means I'll need to do more work sort of changing my library or my application to whenever they decide to, to change the API or I'll just get stuck on some old version, neither of which sound great. Um, Can I derail you for a minute? What exactly does 1.0 one, 1 mean to you? In, in semantic versioning, it has a very precise meaning, which is the API will not break until version 2.0 is released. Okay. So, But before 1.0, then you're allowed to break the API in minor releases. So from 0.1 to 0.2, you're allowed to have breaking changes according to Semver. But from 1.0 to 1.1 to 1.2, the API needs to stay the same. Okay. So, so when you release 1.0, you're sort of making a promise about the API as long as you're following semantic versioning. And aside from just that, I think there's a kind of unspoken agreement that 1.0 is kind of the line where we say, hey, you could use this in production, right? It's, it's the, that's why we allow for those breaking changes before 1.0. It's like, eh, I'm still figuring this out. It's a thing. I don't really know exactly what it ends up looking like yet. But then once I hit 1.0, I'm kind of saying, yeah, I've got it figured out enough that we can start using this. Right? Yeah, so that's a, a really obvious first thing I look for. The second thing I probably look for is tests. Does the project have tests? And is it running them on continuous integration? So, uh, and specifically, if it's using Travis or some other 
uh, CI system? Is it testing them against different Ruby versions? Because again, I don't, uh, I don't want to specify dependency that only works on MRI, that won't work on Rubinius or JRuby uh, or some of these other alternative Ruby implementations. So that's something I look for. Um, I also look at, uh, there's a great service called Coveralls, which basically takes uh, simple cov. So in Ruby 1.9 and later, there's built-in code coverage statistics, which is sort of a, a rough kind of crude measure of how comprehensive the tests execute the code, how much of the code is executed by the tests, represented as a percentage. So uh, ideally, it's 100. And if it's less than that, that means there is certain code that's never exercised by tests. Um, so uh, anyway, Coveralls is a service that after the tests are run on Travis, it will do the the simple cov analysis of the code coverage and then push that to Coveralls, which is a web service that sort of reports that back uh, in the form of a little badge that you will sometimes see at the top of a repository. So if you have tests, but they're not that comprehensive, they're not really covering the code, then that's uh, that's a bad sign. If there's 100% coverage, that's great. And then uh, the last thing I probably look at is code climate. Uh, if a project isn't on code climate, actually anyone can add it. You don't need to be the author or maintainer of that library to add it. You can just go to code climate and uh, paste in the URL for the project. So sometimes I'll do that just to see um, again, it's a pretty crude measure, but it does static analysis. I know you guys have talked about it before and had Brian on the show as a guest. So if people don't know about Code Climate, they can just go back and listen to that episode. But yeah, basically, it's just a crude measure. It gives you a letter score uh, in the American grading system of uh, A through F. So you you get a sense like, is the code high quality? Is it unnecessarily complex? Is it well factored? So uh, yeah, that's that's something I look at as well. Do, do you all do you look at, ever at the number of issues or open issues or pull requests that sort of thing? Uh, sometimes I do. Yeah, I mean that's also a a good indicator, but not always. Like sometimes projects that are very popular will have a lot of open issues, uh, like Rails, for example. Like if you said like I won't use projects that have a lot of open issues, you wouldn't use Rails. Um, Probably a good choice. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it is. Uh, maybe it is, but I think like you, you sort of have to divide like the number of open issues by the number of people using it. And some very un- unpopular projects might have a lot of issues that just haven't been reported yet. And so it's an indicator, but yeah, it's not a it's not a perfect indicator. But yeah, definitely something I look at. And if there are, um, I guess like another thing I look at is just like does the project seem like it's being maintained, like. When was the last commit? And are there open pull requests that look reasonable to me, but for whatever reason, like haven't been commented on, haven't been merged in, uh, like there's no discussion going on there? That's a really bad sign. I submitted a pull request to a project two years ago, and they still haven't commented on it. Yeah, that's rough. (laughs) I normally just thinking hard about it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Sarah May actually covered this in her talk at Gogoruko. These steps that people use to evaluate projects. And um, she she had some interesting things about it. Um, she asked several people like this exact question and got them to define uh, their steps. And then she put them all up on slides. And while well, some people, uh, a lot of people, I would say, did use similar metrics, uh, they definitely used them in different order or, or gave different weight to uh, things. And it, it was... Um, uh, it was very interesting to see, and she kind of grouped them into 
uh, different categories of, you know, this is about the code and this is about the, the uh, people maintaining it or, or things like that. She had these different categorizations of almost trying to kind of dig down into um, what does all of this mean, you know, and, and what are we trying to figure out? It was very interesting. Yeah, I watched that talk. That was great. I'd recommend it as well. So I, I'm curious, is it different maintaining something like Twitter, the Twitter gem, as opposed to uh, something that's more along the lines of a Rails engine like the Rails admin? You know, uh, they're both gems. Uh, there's there's a bunch of differences. I actually gave a talk at Gogoruko a year ago, not the most recent one, but 2012, about Rails engines, where I talk about some of the differences between uh, differences and similarities, I guess, between Rails engines and Rails apps, and also between Rails engines and Ruby gems. And a Rails engine is a Ruby gem, but you do some things differently. So, for example, testing it to test an engine, typically the best practice for doing this, which is seems like a little bit of a hack, but I don't know of any other better way to do it, uh, is to basically just have a simple Rails app inside of your test or spec directory. Um, and then basically mount the engine in that kind of test app, the dummy app, and then test against that dummy app, which, yeah, it's like a little bit of a hack to have like this Rails app inside of your test directory, but yeah, I, I think that's the best way to do it. Th- so I've, I've done something really similar to that where I, it was essentially a, a Rails app template that we embedded in the, in the engine test harness that would, Every time you ran tests, it would generate a brand new Rails app to hook the engine into to test there. And it turns out that running Rails new, if you're yeah. not going through the database initialization, you know, you know, running migrations, all, the, all that kind of stuff, takes just a fraction of a second. It's, you know, it's really fast. So it, it didn't seem like we had to check in all of the files. We could just, you know, have a very simple template that customized the, the stock rails new into an application that worked well for our testing harness. Yeah, that's nice. I've never thought of doing that. The, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, I always think of rails new as being kind of slow, but I guess if all the dependencies are there, then uh, the bundle install after should be pretty quick. The thing that is great about that is then when new rails versions get released, um, you don't have to regenerate that test that's app ex- inside your application. Yeah, that's exactly why we were doing it that way. It, it it simplifies the dependencies a whole lot. Yeah, and also if you want to test against multiple versions of Rails, then that also makes it a lot simpler where mm-hmm. you don't have to have like five different Rails apps right. embedded in your test directory. Yeah, we did take a look at trying to extract that, and it was just too idiosyncratic a solution to be able to generalize to everybody. But I, I think somebody probably could. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you should try to do that. That would be really handy. Maybe I'll put it in Rails app then. If you do. Okay. Worth talking about sometime. It is worth noting that 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 practice just described of embedding a Rails app in the the test is basically what their Rails engines guide recommends. Yeah. It's just, I just think it's ugly, right? Like. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Yeah. That that there's not a way to just, you know, grab a hold of the engine and, and ask it things. But yeah, it's interesting. Eric, anything else you think we should cover? Adamantium. Yeah, let's do that. But can I get oh, yeah. claws or just the skeleton <laughs> enhancement? <laughs> yeah, once you have the skeleton enhancement, who cares, right? Yeah, so I was actually listening to a Ruby Rogues episode uh, 
few weeks ago with Peter Solnica, and he mentioned a bunch of gems that sort of came out of the ROM project, the Ruby Object Mapper, and uh, basically tried just using them. Um, they, I looked them up, and they looked really cool, and uh, tried putting them into the Twitter gem just to, just to play around with them. And a few of them I kept in there. So Equalizer was one that, that came up in that conversation, which I'm actually using now in the Twitter gem. It'll be in version 5. Um, and what, another one which I tried... How are you using that? Uh, so basically, the Twitter gem returns objects that have a unique ID. So for example, every tweet has a unique ID or every Twitter user has a unique ID. And when you compare, like you might fetch like two users in two separate requests and compare those two users to see if they're actually the same user, um, even though they're different objects. Um, and basically, if they have the same ID, you want them to be the same. You want uh, equals equals to return true. And so the equalizer gem gives you a really easy way to do that. And yeah, so I, I had custom code in the Twitter gem that had been doing that for a long time. And now I'm just using equalizer, which uh, I looked at their code. And it's, it's actually better at doing that than the code I was doing. Like it covers more edge cases and uh, is better factored. And yeah, it's just, just nicer code. So I'm using that now. Uh, and then adamantium was the other one that I looked at. And uh, that's the one that sort of freezes all your Ruby objects, basically turns them into immutable objects. And I actually had a version of this working and ended up backing it out because... Why did I back it out? Oh, uh, because it was only compatible with uh, Ruby 1.9 and greater. And uh, for a variety of reasons, I'd like to maintain compatibility with uh, Ruby 1.8.7, even though it's dead. Uh, basically, if there's not a really good reason to break compatibility, I try to maintain it. And I didn't think adamantium freezing all my objects was was a good enough reason to break that compatibility for some people. Also, uh, just benchmarking it, freezing all those objects, had the effect of slowing things down pretty substantially on MRI. It didn't affect other Ruby implementations as much, but uh, since so many people use MRI, I, I just wasn't sure it was worth the trade-off of including that. But there's one really nice feature of adamantium, which is uh, a memoize method. And so I, I wanted to use the memoize method, and uh, but not the sort of freezing functionality that's sort of the core functionality in Adamantium. So I'm actually working with Dan Cub now on a memoizable gem uh, that should be broken out of Adamantium and can be used standalone. So that's one of the actual final things I need to do, get that gem released before, break it out of Adamantium and make sure Adamantium still works and memoization still works there, um, and then include that separate gem as a, a Twitter gem dependency and uh, just to do simple memoization. So basically, if you, uh, if you execute a method, the second time you execute it, instead of redoing whatever computation that method does, it'll just return basically a cached value, which is important. It's very relevant to adamantium because when you're freezing, freezing an object, if you uh, assign an instance variable when you call a method, which is a pretty common thing to do when you call a method, the second time you call that method, you can't reassign the instance variable if, if that object is frozen, right? So memoization and adamantium are, are sort of tightly coupled now and working on decoupling those because sometimes you want to do memoization without doing uh, without necessarily freezing the object. Are you doing memoization including methods that take uh, arguments? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the current code in, uh, in adamantium only memoizes methods with a zero arity. But I think one of the benefits, and probably the first release of the memoize, uh, memoizable gem, 
will only support zero-arity methods, but mm-hmm. future versions might. And I think it's a, a really good argument, actually, for having it as a separate gem because it can it sort of has a life of its own and can evolve and people can can add features to it independent of adamantium. So, what's your uh, approach I, for storing right now? Uh it actually uses Charlie Nutter's thread safe hash um implementation okay. is used under the hood. So, uh I think he mentioned that a few episodes ago uh on his uh when he was on the podcast, he has this threads uh thread safe gem uh which I'd really recommend everyone checking out. He's trying to get the same sort of data structures built into Ruby 2.1 as primitive data structures in Ruby. But right. for now, you have to use them as a separate gem, and they're really nice. So basically, there's a thread-safe hash, thread-safe array, and thread-safe cache. And basically, they behave just like hash and array, but they give you these thread-safe guarantees, which if you're using JRuby and there's no global interpreter lock, that's really nice to have, uh, or Rubinius for that matter. So... Yeah, the, if you're doing that sort of caching, a thread-safe hash is a really nice, uh, really nice data structure to use. Right, right. And you're just you've got zero arity, so you're just basing it on the the name of the method, and nothing else is the key. That's exactly right. Yeah. So like a, you uh, get a single hash per object, and yeah, that's exactly right. And it, you know, if you try to account for different arity, that that makes it quite a bit more complicated. So for now, we're just doing the simple oh, yeah, thing. Very much. And and that solves uh, that solves a big uh, like many use cases like right. you can cache many of your methods with zero arity and yeah I think we just need more time to sort of think about what data structures make sense and what we should do yeah. to what, whether it actually makes sense to support methods with greater than zero arity right well I mean that can that can explode really fast in complexity because you know you, somebody decides oh this is really cool i i want to cache this method that takes in some arbitrary argument like i don't know the method that gives you information about a, a twitter user for instance and so you know they they the argument is the name of the twitter user and returns information about the twitter user well then you they throw it into a program that retrieves information about arbitrary twitter users and suddenly you're caching an enormous amount of of information so then you have to start thinking about oh, okay do we want to do least re- you know drop stuff off the off the cache if it's old or something like that. So yeah, it's definitely a lot easier to support the, the zero org case. Plus there's yeah, exactly. the question of uh, how do you compare arguments? Is it a straight, you know, equality check? Equality, it, identity, three yeah, uh, yeah. equality. <laughs> right. We get, yeah. I mean, in the simplest case, right, it can be just putting the method name followed by the arguments in an array and using that as a key to a hash. That actually works in Ruby. Uh, because an array can be a key to a hash, but you know there's lots of sub edge cases in there that may or may not be acceptable, like we just talked about. So yeah, it's exactly. Kind of, it, it's kind of interesting, Eric. You talk about the Twitter gem being your kind of um, you know testing ground for these ideas in cases where you were just playing with these. I think I've actually learned about gems before uh, by seeing them used in the Twitter gem, like. I just looked, and it's not true today, but I think in the past, the Twitter gem used Hashi. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, the original implementation used Hashi. Yeah, and and so I kind of learned about the Hashi gem because I saw a Twitter gem returning those objects to me, and I'm like, what the heck is this? And and looked into it a little bit. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, to hear you say that you use it as this kind of testing ground. Yeah, that's exactly how I use it. It's great for that. And I think everyone should have some gem like that. Like API wrappers, I think, are actually really good testing grounds for this because 
you know, you have your sort of objects, like a Twitter user object or an object that represents a tweet. Um, and then you have to do some HTTP stuff. So to me, there's sort of just the right level of complexity where you can kind of play around with lots of new ideas. And, you know, if you want to try out memoization or uh, freezing objects or something like that, like you just have a little testing ground to do it. And I definitely treat the Twitter gem uh, that way. Speaking specifically to, to Hashi, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, that, w- that was one of the original dependencies that John Nunemaker had in the gem. And actually one of the reasons why I got involved in the project was to factor that out, basically. Like, I'm not a big fan of Hashi and didn't like the type of objects that it generated. And so, yeah, like, I uh, <laughs> I guess uh, that I, I would not... Uh, it was in the Twitter gem at some point, but it's not something that I would necessarily... And it's an interesting gem, but not, ne- not necessarily something I would endorse using unless you're just doing sort of very quick uh, API hacks. I, I want to hear more about that because I think that that's the kind of, in, you know experiential opinion that, uh, that you know, that sounds like hard-won knowledge. Yeah, so Hashi is this gem that basically will take a hash, and um, it's kind of like in Rails, you have this concept of hash within different access, where you can access a hash using either a string or a symbol, that, and kind of go back and forth between them. You don't have to worry about it. Hashi kind of takes that one step further, and gives you method access uh, keys in the hash. So, for example, so it's, it's sort of similar to Open Object in the standard library. OpenStruct. Uh, yeah. Open uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. OpenStruct. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Basically, like if you have a hash and it has a key called foo um, and a value, you know, pointing with the arrow or colon to bar, you can say with the brackets symbol foo to get out bar string foo to get out bar, or you can say dot foo to get out bar. And I don't like it specifically because it makes it, like, these keys are coming in from an, a third-party API, from an external API, that you don't really have control over what the keys are. They're coming, in this case, from Twitter. And so there's nothing to say that Twitter couldn't return some keys in that hash that overwrite method names in Ruby, right? In the right. sort of Ruby's basic object. And so for example, Ruby, now it's called object ID, but dot ID used to return the ID of the object according to Ruby. Right. And Twitter also has this concept of an ID. And so that's an example of a conflict there. And like hash is another good example, like the dot hash method. Every object in Ruby has a dot hash method, so it can be hashed when it's put into a hash. And uh, it's confusing that Ruby calls hashes hashes, but mm-hmm. yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yes, it, 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 in any real language, they're called dictionaries. Yeah, or hash maps, <laughs> or, yeah, maps. But So, uh, uh, you're a real Python anyway. fan, huh, huh Josh? <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Hashi I just found to be not so good, because you basically didn't have, uh, and, and it wasn't clear what the behavior would be, right? Should the, uh, which method should be overwritten? Should the, the Twitter ID method override the Ruby ID method, or should the Ruby ID method over, override the Twitter method? And obviously, there's things you can do to alias methods and, and get around these. But to me, you should really just define Ruby objects that know what their attributes are and map them based on, the ha- like, define your own methods that are mapped based on the hash. And this gives you the ability to do nice things. So, for example, a Twitter user has a created at property for when that user basically signed up for Twitter. And if you're using Hashi, That'll just return the string that uh, sort of Twitter's JSON returns to you. 
But by defining your own method, you can actually convert that to a Ruby time object. And I think that's what most Rubyists would expect uh, created at to return, to return a, a time object. Right. Uh, well, another example of that is the website method. So every Twitter user has a, a website that's sort of associated with their Twitter account. Mine is my GitHub profile. And so, um, again, like you could just return the string, but I think it's a little more Ruby-like to return actually a URI, uh, URI object, a Ruby URI sure. object, when you call user.website. So for me, this is, um, this is like one of the big advantages of defining custom objects instead of using Hashi. And Hashi is great for, like I said, just like quick hacks. Like if you're just building out something for like a hackathon weekend or something, fine, use Hashi. Right. But uh, if you really want like an API, uh, an API wrapper that people are going to be using in production applications, um, it's worth taking the time to define proper objects for each of the objects in the system. Seems like a, a good general kind of uh, rule is that if you have an object that is a uh, like a bag of attributes, you know, it seems like a good rule that the subscript operator, you know, square brackets is what you use for raw access. And if you're going to get an attribute by method, then maybe the method it adds a some some convenience over the raw access or some you know some higher some more semantic meaning or something like that. Yeah, on Twitter objects, I uh, I expose an adders method that gives you raw access, so you can always okay. get that string representation of a date uh, mm -hmm. or the string representation of a URI if you want it. But um, most people will use the just the normal methods to access those. The other big advantage of uh, defining your own custom Ruby objects is that, uh, for example, that object graph, the object hierarchy that we were talking about uh, at the very beginning of the call, you basically can't generate that if you're using Hashi, right? Like you don't have any concept of what the objects are. So if somebody's looking at a project and they want to see kind of like what are all the entities in this gem, uh, if you're using Hashi, those are all hidden. So right. yet another advantage of defining your own objects. So I, I definitely agree with everything Eric just said, and I feel, feel like it was an excellent point, and we should definitely push that. In defense of Hashi, uh, just so we cover both sides, uh, it is actually a collection of tools, uh, one of which can be used to define these hash-like objects with predefined properties. That one's called Dash, uh, and you can actually explicitly say which properties it does and does not have. Um, and typically, you you uh, you know do that in your own classes, so you still get the object hierarchy and stuff. So uh, that's one thing. There's also a, a trash is another thing in there, which works kind of like Dash in that you define these properties, but you can specify what they come from in the original info. So if you've got like some, you know, Java-centric API or whatever that's using like the camel case and you want to use it as a more Ruby-esque, you know, underscore, uh, then you can give the from camel case name and define the property, the underscore one. And again, this is explicit property definition. So uh, it's, it doesn't have that problem of just random fields uh, and stuff. But uh, so there are some interesting tools in there and I think it, it's not totally an unviable tool. Uh, but um, I, another thing I would argue is I have had a few cases, it typically comes up when I'm talking to some kind of payment gateway. Um, typically, every interaction with a payment gateway involves it dumping about 40 billion fields on me, of which I care about three. 
you know, <laughs> did this payment go through or something? So my, my goal is I pull out the three fields that I actually care about and use those to do whatever logic I want. But because it's something like a payment gateway and I want this wonderful audit trail, I take that thing they gave me and shove it somewhere, right, for like a, a reference purposes. And I, I think on something like that, hashy can be fine, even in the form we were talking about uh, where, you know, you have this random set of fields, because if they start sending me, you know, four billion and one fields, then I would be okay with picking up that extra data. But I definitely agree with what Eric said and, and the API and defining your own objects. That's actually why I find like the ROM ecosystem tools really interesting because they lower the barrier to doing that kind of stuff with libraries like Equalizer and Concord and stuff like that. Totally. I, I agree with everything there. And actually, uh, I was referring specifically to the hashy colon colon mash data structure, which does like the, the M in mash stands for method to give you method access. And in hashy 1.0, it didn't have uh, some of those features that you you were talking of where you can sort of build up your own hash-like object with whatever properties you want. Um, that was mostly rewritten, like the library was largely rewritten for 2.0, which was released earlier this year. And it's a much, like 2.0 is much nicer, but when I was sort of evaluating uh, whether Hashi was a good fit for the Twitter gem, I was doing that sort of in the, the 1.x days or maybe even the 0.x days of the, the Hashi gem. And um, back then it was, it was much less less flexible. But yeah, it's a good gem to know about. And it's uh, definitely useful for certain things. So I don't mean to, to give it a bad rap. One other question about the Twitter gem. Uh, you mentioned to me recently that you'd started to use the null object pattern. Can you talk a little bit about how you use that? Uh, sure. Yeah. So it was actually a feature request from one of the users who, uh, again, because you're dealing with this third, RP, uh, third party API. That user uh, was Avdi, right? <laughs> uh, just checking yeah it was all for not <laughs> yeah uh, basically like the Twitter API is web service and it's unpredictable and sometimes uh, so for example when you get a tweet back that tweet will have an embedded user object in it and people are uh, expect that Twitter user object to be there within the tweet right so that way when you display the tweet you can also display the name of the user who tweeted it and the profile picture or something like that, depending on your application. Um, but sometimes, for whatever reason, Twitter will return uh, a tweet with no user, with no embedded user. It's, I think, uh, maybe their internal service, user service didn't return the user fast enough, and so uh, the tweet just gets returned with, with no embedded user. I think I've actually never seen this, but a user reported that it was possible, so I took his word for it, and basically uh, instead of having it just return nil there, had it return a null object. And so uh, if you expect there to be a user in your tweet 99.9% .9 of the time, uh, there's going to be a user there whose name you can display. But for the 0.01 or maybe even less percent of the time when there's not a user, your application, you won't get a, a no method error if you're trying to call methods on that embedded user object, you'll just get nothing. So that's another feature that's new in the 5.0 version of the gem that should be released pretty soon. You've got a pattern in this null object code that I've never seen before, uh, or an idiom, I guess I should say. You've got some, you're conditionally, conditionally defining some methods depending on the, uh, the Ruby version, and you're actually doing it by saying def, like def respond to question mark, blah, blah, blah. You've got the, the body of the method, then end, so the end of the method, and then after the end of the method, you have if Ruby version is less than 1.9. 
Yeah, That's... I think I I think I shamelessly cargo culted that from the Backports gem, which it's basically that's its business to do this right. sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's funny. I, it never, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but it never actually occurred to me that, that I could put a, uh, a statement modifier at the end of a def. Yep. Now I um, challenge you to try wild. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> for, yeah, for, that, that hot swapping, might, for hot swapping, for hot swapping, movie version. <laughs> <laughs> the, what'll happen there? The class will just not compile, right? Until the wild yeah. returns. Yeah. Well, very cool. I loved what you said about having the gem to be your your test environment. I agree that that's a great thing to have that where you can go, hey, this is a neat idea. What if I go and convert everything to use that? And, and you know, you can do it on a branch. You can see, like you said, if something like adamantium ends up resulting in a performance hit or whatever, because you've got a pretty big enough set of things to try, you know, and and uh, I, I think that that playground, that experimentation area is really important. Definitely. And I've built a, a few other gem wrappers as well. I actually, I built one for the uh, Sunlight Congress API, which has data about things in the U.S. Congress, votes and things like that in the House and Senate, like which senators and Congress people voted, voted which way on which bills. So I did a, a Ruby wrapper for that. If you say gem install Congress, that's that gem. Um, I did one for... Uh, Mt. Gox, which is the largest Bitcoin exchange. Um, and I was actually doing some Bitcoin arbitrage between different exchanges back in the day. So I actually wrote a couple different API wrappers for, for Bitcoin exchanges. And I, I even did uh, a gem that wraps the rubygems.org API. That's the gems gem. So if you say gem install gems, um, you will get the gem for accessing gems, basically, uh, getting metadata about Ruby gems which versions have been released and when they were released and who the authors are and things like that. So that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I can't, you know, I can't help it, but I have to ask this. If you install the Congress gem, will your machine shut down for a week? <laughs> uh, hopefully not. <laughs> no, no, but it will tell you who you don't want doing ops work on your machine. <laughs> <laughs> I keep these, keep these guys away from my machine. Okay. Um, well, yeah, yeah. The, what was I going to say? There was, uh, there was something else about, oh, yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I'd encourage anybody who, like, there's so many APIs that don't have Ruby sort of wrapper libraries around them, and even ones that do, like, it's a great, it's a great playground to just experiment with ideas and concepts like null objects and freezing objects and memoization in Ruby. Like, there's basically no good excuse for not writing one of these Ruby wrapper libraries. Um, and if you want to use Twitter as an example or ask me questions about it, I'm happy to help anyone who wants to get started doing that. So, yeah, I would encourage like everyone just go write a, a Ruby lap wrapper for your favorite API. I, I have another question for you. With all these gems that you maintain, how do you still have a job and get stuff done? <laughs> well, uh, it's a good question. So a lot of them I created while I was a Code for America fellow. Um, and basically, my job as a Code for America fellow was to produce open source software. So, uh, for example, I developed the Congress gem uh, while I was doing that. And, you know, if you follow some of these best practices, these gems sort of maintain themselves more or less, unless there's big API changes. The Congress almost never changes. So, uh, right, like it's this institution that's been around for a few hundred years and uh, <laughs> the votes and like the basic core 
concepts of it don't change very often. So yeah, like things like that actually don't require that much maintenance. And when they do, I've written some scripts to basically automate that. So for example, if there is uh, a new version of Rake uh, or some gem that I use in uh, that some gem that's a dependency of almost all my other gems, RSpec is another example. Uh, I basically written scripts to recurse through my directory of gems that I maintain and update those dependencies programmatically. So that's uh, a little bit of scripting and a little bit of just following good practices so that you don't have to be constantly churning. Automating that workflow. That's right. Writing code to write code. All right. Well, do you guys have any other questions for Eric? I know this episode's gone a little bit long, but it's been really good. That um, what we were just you were just talking about actually prompted another question in my mind. Uh, if if people are writing gems that wrap HTTP services, one thing that can happen is if if I use that gem, I'm now bound to like whatever HTTP backend uh, you chose to use in that gem, uh, which can have some interesting implications. If uh, let's say it's you use you know Ruby's built-in HTTP libraries, well now. If I want to do some asynchronous processing using your gem, I might have to put that in a thread as opposed to using event machine reactor stuff. So, I mean, what what should I guess this question really boils down to should everybody who is writing gems that wrap external services be using Faraday? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, that was that was one of the things that got me into the Twitter gem was to basically decouple the Twitter gem from net HTTP. And NetHttp is still the default adapter uh, for the Twitter gem. But if you want, you can easily switch in a different adapter. You can use EMHttp for Event Machine. You can use Typheus. You can use Patron and a variety of other adapters that I've never even used or heard of that, that Faraday supports. So yeah, for those who don't know, Faraday, it's basically like the opposite of Rack. So um, Rack lets you basically define response middleware. And Faraday is for defining request uh, request middleware. And at the end of that middleware is an adapter. Um, but you can also insert things in the middle of that request cycle that you want to happen every time. So for example, uh, in the Twitter gem, the response handling, like parsing a response into, uh, into JSON, for example, is handled all in middleware. So there's no, there's no actual code in the Twitter gem for JSON parsing, that's just Faraday middleware that I put into my middleware stack, and everything that comes back from Twitter is automatically parsed as JSON. And then the other example of that is error handling. So if Twitter resp- uh, returns a 200 code, then everything's okay, and you parse it as JSON and you go forward. But if it's not 200, then you can handle that differently, raise an exception or, or do something else. So. Uh, yeah, all of that's handled in the middleware. And the thing that's really nice is that I actually exposed that middleware uh, interface, which is maybe like a little bit ugly, like exposing too much of the internal implementation. But it's actually really nice. So for example, if you're in China and you're behind a firewall um, and you want to proxy your Twitter request, you don't want to hit the Twitter server directly. You want to go through a proxy server because the, the Twitter endpoint is blocked by by your firewall. You can just insert prox- proxy middleware at the top of that middleware stack, and it'll work perfectly. And another good example of using Faraday is for logging. So if you want to log uh, HTTP requests, like there's some bug and you're trying to track it, track it down, you can just insert logging middleware, and then everything, as long as you insert that at the top of the stack, or you can actually insert it in the middle if you want to, 
if you know like an error is happening only at a certain point in the HTTP request, then you can just like log out different information about your HTTP requests. So yeah, uh, if you're writing an HTTP wrapper, definitely I would recommend using Faraday. And so to go back to Avdi's question, you know, what if I suddenly decided to make my request uh, requests parallel? It turns out Faraday supports that too. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming on the show, Eric. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been fun for me as well. My pleasure. And we, we've only owed you for like a year and a half, so. <laughs> it's good. Better, better late than never. <laughs> we get around to it. We're just slow. Yep. All right. Well, uh, let's do the picks. James, why don't you start us off? Okay. I have, um, for a tech pick, we had the Food Fight show uh, guys on our podcast a while ago uh, talking about infrastructure and stuff like that. Chef, I think. Anyways, they run the Ops podcast, kind of modeled off of um, Ruby Rogues and a similar format, these these roundtable discussions. It's really good. One of the things that came up on our episode was Chad Fowler's post over blog post about immutable infrastructure. And at the time, they told us when they were on the show uh, that they were trying to get Chad on their show to uh, uh, discuss that so they could have a great discussion around it. And they did that uh, shortly after our show, actually, but it took me forever to get around to actually listening to it. Uh, and it's a cool episode. So if you're inter- at all remotely interested in uh, uh, that kind of stuff, uh, you should go listen to the Food Fight Show, especially that episode, the Immutable Infrastructure, because it's great. And then on some uh, less techie picks, I've mentioned that Kathy Sierra is back in the world of social media, and it's so great to have her back. I can't believe how many things I'm getting out of just, like, following her on Twitter. One is I found this new electronic artist that she recommended I listen to uh, named BT, the letters BT. And um, I guess BT uh, is a programmer or something, but also an electronic artist. And I've really been uh, digging that music, especially to uh, program, too. Uh, So that was a great find. Also, Kathy just wrote a wonderful blog post uh, about conference presentations. Uh, If you give conference presentations, please forget everything you've been taught and then go read this blog post and just stop there. That would be excellent for us. Uh, I just, I I read that, but I had not realized that was Kathy Sierra. It's Kathy Sierra. Yes. Okay. Those are my picks. Awesome. Avdi, what are your picks? My picks. So uh, I think I mentioned in the last time I did picks that I've been iterating on my my uh, travel sort of toolkit, uh, things that make my travel more comfortable, and especially as been, I've been doing a lot more um, flying internationally. Uh, the last few things that I added and tested out on my uh, the, the trip I just got back from uh, include a new neck pillow. So this is kind of a little thing, but I, I'd had a neck pillow for a long time for sleeping in, in on uh, airline seats. Um, but I, I was kind of curious if better ones existed since I just kind of grabbed the first one I saw at Walmart. And I, I looked around for a bit and I found the uh, Cabot Memory Foam Evolution Neck and Travel Pillow, uh, which is kind of pricey uh, as these things go. But uh, it's it's memory foam, so it's a bit firmer than the one I had. And it folds up, it squishes down to like a quarter of its original size into a little bag, and then you can you pull it out and it expands back out to its original shape. It's much uh, higher. It's, it's both firmer and higher than than uh, most of the neck pillows you see like at airports. 
And so it actually really does hold my head up as opposed to like kind of trying to. And uh, it's got some other clever, like the, the shape is different. Uh, the back of it is actually thin, so it doesn't push the head forward from the seat, but the rest of it is thick. It's got a, like a fastener in front to make sure it like stays closed around your neck instead of just letting your head fall out. Um, it's just well-designed, I guess. And uh, I tried it out on my, my trip to Belgium, and it worked really, really well. It was, it was much more comfortable than the last neck pillow I used. So, you know, if you're stuck in, stuck in uh, the cattle car class, and don't have one of those those uh, seats that you can lay down on. Uh, this seems like a pretty good purchase. Another thing that I brought with me, uh, I splurged on this one. I'd been looking at various noise-canceling headsets and, and things like that for a while. And I got the, the most expensive pair of headphones I've ever bought and probably ever will buy. They're like $300. But uh, it's called the Parrot Zik. And it's this pair of noise-canceling Bluetooth headphones so they, they function as headphones. They function as a Bluetooth headset. If you want to make calls on them, they are noise canceling. They've got pretty solid noise canceling, um, stacks up pretty well to some of the other noise canceling headsets out there. And, um, they're really, really, really nicely designed. I mean, they look like a, a piece of art and they've got stuff like, uh, NFC. So with the right Android phone, you can just tap it to, to pair it. The one side of one of the ear cups is a touch panel. So, uh, or the, like a gesture touch panel. So if you want to control your phone, uh, like track forward, track back, or adjust the volume up or down, you can just, uh, slide your finger in a, you know, up, down gesture or a left, right gesture or tap. And it senses the gestures and which actually turns out to work really well. And a lot of little touches like that, like you can take them off of your ears and it automatically stops the music playing. So pricey, but, uh, but you can see that you can tell they put a fair amount of, of effort into it. I've been pretty impressed with them. They're they're a little less comfortable than I would expect for for their price level, at least on the very top of my head. But uh, that part of that may just be my head shape. And um, I'll do one more. I have been really enjoying the show The West Wing. I realize this is not anything new, but uh, when, once I run, ran out of House of Cards to watch, I uh, sort of cast about for something to to give me my my Washington politics television fix and uh, realized that all of the West Wing was on Netflix. And so I've been kind of plowing my way through all the seasons of the West Wing. It's it's just a great, great show. And it's funny how, even though it's, you know, I don't know, a decade old or something at, at, at this point, how relevant so many of the episodes are. Like just a few weeks ago, I watched the episode about the, gov- about a government shutdown as a result of a impasse between the Democrats and the Republicans. And it like explains stuff that, that, like now I feel like I understand the current government shutdown better because of that episode. So cool show. Nice. Katrina, what are your picks? I don't have any today. Josh, what are your picks? Okay. So Rubinius two has been released, uh, but that's not actually my pick. <laughs> I think it's cool. And, it, and, um, gee, maybe we should do a show on it one of these days, but, um, the, a part of the Rubinius two announcement, was that they are now providing the Ruby standard library Ruby. Well, okay. So Rubinius includes an implementation of the standard library written in Ruby itself, because that's how Rubinius works. And they've released all that packaged as a bunch of gems. And uh, it's actually pretty cool. So I think uh, 
if you want to know more about how the standard library in Ruby works, this is a really good resource. I've said this before that you know looking at the source code in Ruby is a hell of a lot easier. Sorry, a heck of a lot easier than uh, looking at it and see most of the, for most of us uh, Rubyists. Okay, so yeah, the Ruby standard library as Ruby gems, thanks to Rubinius. Uh, that's that's my pick. Then there's this book. I I don't think this has been picked before. There's this book called the Codex Serafinianus that uh, came out, I don't know, 30 years ago, something like that, 1980, 81. And uh, it's sort of a, an encyclopedia from a parallel universe is the best way to describe it. It's uh, sort of written in a made-up language and lots of bizarre pictures of uh, nonsensical things. But it's, I don't know, sort of like Dr. Seuss for grown-ups. Uh, but there's a new version of it that uh, has just been published. It's going to be available uh, any week now. And uh, I'm kind of excited. I never managed to get a copy of the book back in the 80s when I first encountered it. And uh, so I'm going to have to get a copy of this when it comes out. It's uh, it's it's definitely like the most interesting coffee table book you can put on your coffee table. I'll just leave it at that. Nice. Okay, that's it for me this week. All right, I've got a couple of picks. My first one is related to James' pick. He was talking about the guys from the Food Fight show. I think we had Nathan on the show, if I remember right. Anyway, I've been playing with Chef, and I've been watching. I've been watching these videos um, that were put together by Nathan Harvey, who is one of the guys on the food fight show and uh they're a tutorial on how to get started with chef and they're really good so um i'll go ahead and put a link to the those in the show notes another pick that i have is i have been playing with redmine for a while and uh i found a plugin for redmine called the redmine backlog plugin and it is really really nice i moved away from pivotal tracker mainly because you have to pay to have more than one person on a project and that kind of set things up so that I wasn't using that all the time with my clients. You know, I'd, sometimes the clients had their own ticket tracking system or whatever. So I, I moved over to Redmine for my own stuff um, so that I can, you know, bring people who want to help me out on that um, onto those projects. And uh, the backlog basically allows you to set up a workflow for your uh, tasks, tickets, features, bugs, whatever you want to call them. And then as you work through them, you can move them over to in progress or resolved or completed or rejected or whatever. Anyway, it's it's really awesome and uh, I've really really liked it. So I'm I'm going to pick that as well. And like I said, I've been playing around with Redmine. If you need help with Redmine, I'm happy to help you. Um obviously that's part of my consulting business. And uh I've also been playing with Spree and I've been playing with the Spree digital plugin for Spree, which allows you to sell digital products on your Spree shopping cart. And it looks really cool. I haven't quite got it implemented yet, but uh, so far it looks like exactly what I need for some of the other stuff that I'm doing. And so I'm going to pick that as well. And And just to clear it up, since two of us have mentioned it, it was Nathan Harvey on the show, episode 113, where we talked about DevOps. Awesome. Yeah, Nathan was super helpful. He actually got on and helped me uh, find or fix some problems that I was having with the the cookbook for uh, Apache. And so uh, we actually submitted some pull requests for that and fixed a couple of bugs. So he's he's really helpful. He works for OpsCode, who are the people that put out Chef. So I can't say enough good things about him. Um, Eric, what are your picks? So I'm really excited for my picks this week. 
yeah, I've been listening to the show forever. And I always sort of think like, if I was on the show, what would I pick? And so now it's like my, my big chance to get them all out there. So there's a bunch of them. Uh, I guess my first one sort of to plus one, Josh's pick of Rubinius 2.0. I would also add JRuby 175, uh, as well as MRI uh, 2.1.0 preview. So the past three weeks or so has had releases of all of these, I would sort of say the big three Ruby implementations. And obviously the MRI release is just a preview release, but you know, the JRuby and Rubinius releases are re- really exciting, I think. Like both of these Ruby implementations have just-in-time compilers. Uh, they both have parallel generational garbage collection, uh, and they both lack a global interpreter lock. And uh, Miguel Kamba actually ran some benchmarks against these three Ruby implementations that just got released this week, uh, and also against MRI 2.0 and 3.0. Uh, uh, 1.9.3. And um, obviously, like all benchmarks, they're not necessarily representative of your workload if you have a Rails app, but uh, I think they're sort of interesting. And I would say for Rubinius in particular, like this is the first release of Rubinius that I think it would be responsible to run in production looking at the performance. Uh, Previous versions of Rubinius have been pretty slow in my experience, and this one actually looks awesome. So um, I would say like install Rubinius, check it out. If you write, uh, if you maintain any gems or libraries, you should definitely test them against uh, Rubinius and JRuby. And uh, so that people can use those gems on these alternate Ruby implementations. Because uh, if you look at these benchmarks, these implementations are surpassing MRI um, in many cases. And so uh, I think a lot of people are going to start uh, switching from MRI to JRuby and Rubinius in production which is, is really exciting, I think. It's a pretty pretty exciting time in Ruby. Um, and of course, there's Topaz and other sort of up-and-coming Ruby implementations as well. So yeah, this, this I think is great. Uh, my second pick is the dot language, uh, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Dot is basically a graph description language, and one of its design goals is to be both human and computer readable. So uh, much in the way that Ruby is sort of easy to write and easy to read, uh, I think dot is also this way, and you get to really easily generate these cool, uh, cool graphics, cool sort of like diagrams, directed graphs, non-directed graphs, if you want. And the dot command line utility can generate them in any format: uh, PDF, PostScript, PNG, uh, JPEG, you name it. And uh, I would actually say, like, read the grammar for the dot language. It's really simple. It's only about three pages if you print it out, um, and it's really easy to understand. So you don't have to like buy a book on Dot. You can just read the grammar and understand the language and maybe look at a couple examples of it and pretty quickly figure out how it works. It's basically just like nodes and edges, so pretty simple. My next pick is an app pick. It's uh, Duolingo. Uh, I recently moved to Berlin, Germany, and I spoke no German before moving here, and uh, installed this app on my phone. They just released a new iOS 7 style uh, app for the iPhone, and there's also an Android app. And it's awesome. Basically, it teaches you a language, and it's a completely free app, and it's an awesome app. And you're like, how could they have such a great app that is is completely free? Like, where do they get the money from this? And it turns out that they're like, basically the front end, like the sales end of the business 
is selling online language translation service and you're the back end, you're translating. And so it has this really strong incentive to teach you uh, to a level where you could actually translate random snippets of text on the web. Um, and then once you get that good to German, you're basically providing a translation service for them, which they charge people for. So the app is free, but basically their goal is to get you really good at uh, whatever language you're learning so that they can make money from you. But they can only do that if you get to a certain level. So seems like an awesome, uh, awesome idea. And I sort of didn't think to learn a, a new language, a new human language. Uh, we always talk about learning new programming languages, like learn a new language every year. But I never thought to do that for human language until I moved to Germany. Uh, but really, there's, there was nothing preventing me from learning a language before. And it's, uh, I'm learning so much, and it's fun to speak German uh, and learn German. And I, I actually wish I had, had done it earlier. Like, there was no reason not to. So, uh, yeah, I, I would really recommend uh, downloading Duolingo and trying to learn a, a new language on your phone. It's like a great thing to do when you're like sitting and waiting for the bus instead of like playing Bejeweled or whatever you do on your phone. That's old school, Angry Birds, whatever people do today. Uh, just like learn a language instead. It's way better. My next pick is Charlie Kaufman, who's uh, a hero of mine. He's a writer and producer of films. And you might be familiar with his films without actually knowing who he is. He did Eternal Shun Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, he did Being John Malkovich. Uh, adaptation, uh, Synecdoche, New York, and a lesser known film called Human Nature. And these are actually like five of my favorite films of all time. And so I would really recommend, like, if you've seen one of them and sort of liked it, I would really recommend seeking out the others and watching it. They're, they're just really great movies. Um, but my pick is actually not the movies. I mean, it, it is like, go see those. But if you're only going to do like one of my picks, it would actually be this one which is this lecture that he gave at the uh, BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. And basically, it's the first lecture he ever gave, and I'm, I'm not sure he's given one since. Um, and it's just the most epic, like, incredible lecture I think I've ever heard. Um, I can't recommend it strongly enough. I know we've gone long, but I, I almost, like, I'm inclined to just, like, read the first two paragraphs to you because like they're so awesome and it's just uh, very raw, very real. It covers topics like imposter syndrome, which I know is, is a, a common topic of discussion on this show. Um, and he's just very open and honest about his practice and what he does. And, and uh, yeah, uh, I think a lot of it apl applies to programming, but it's also just, uh, it's just a great, great listen. And then uh, I'm also going to pick Louis C.K. So he has a television show called Louie. It's been through three seasons. And similar to the Charlie Kaufman pick, I think Louie is just like the realest, one of the realest shows on television. It's, it's fiction and, uh, I guess it's, it's comedy as well, but it's a really different brand of comedy than, than maybe you're used to seeing on television and addresses some, some real issues, like real life issues in ways that so-called reality TV doesn't even scratch the surface of. So it's a great show. And he also just released a comedy special. It aired on HBO back in the spring and won an Emmy for the best writing. And now you can download it on his website for five bucks. And it, it was just released today. I actually haven't listened to it yet, but uh, he's done this before. And 
I really sort of appreciate his kind of entrepreneurial spirit in just like routing around any sort of traditional distribution platforms and retaining his rights to, to his comedy, to his work, um, and just putting it up on the internet himself for a fair price uh, and with sort of minimal DRM. So yeah, I would, uh, I would recommend checking that out. Uh, if you like Louis CK and his brand of comedy, uh, there's a new, new stand-up special free to download for five bucks. Totally worth it. And my last picks, last but not least, are actually Twitter accounts. I don't know if it's normal to pick Twitter accounts on this show, but there's a couple I've, of Twitter I've accounts. D- I've done it a couple times. Great. Okay, good. Then uh, in, in the tradition of picking, the, the rich and long tradition of picking Twitter accounts on Ruby Rogues, I will select brilliant underscore ads. This is such a cool Twitter account. So basically they just tweet little photos of billboards and magazine ads and sometimes YouTube videos to television ads, but it's normally just little pics that you can consume uh, pretty quickly on Twitter. And they're really clever. Like a lot of them are just uh, funny or interesting or really well written. And most advertising is crap, but uh, like anything, most, most everything is crap, I think. But yeah, when it's, when it's good, it's really good. And, and this Twitter account just features the best ads from all over the world. And then my second Twitter account pick is Seinfeld Today, which is uh, basically tweets as like uh, uh, plot lines from the Seinfeld television show if they were happening in modern times. And so, you know, if Kramer had access to social media, for example, is sort of the, the premise. And um, the people who write it, like I know Seinfeld and watch Seinfeld and, and know the characters really well. And to me, like the voice that they write in is just pitch perfect for for these characters. And so if you enjoyed Seinfeld and you sort of miss it, you could watch the refrun, uh, the reruns or you could just follow uh, Seinfeld today on Twitter. And uh, yeah, those uh, those two accounts really cheer me up in my in my timeline. You'd awesome. probably like uh, TNG season eight. Ah, yes. Although I think I think they've stopped tweeting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> is that a, a, a Twitter account as well? I hadn't yeah. seen that. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a, a Twitter account that was pretty amusing. There's also like a Bay Area TNG that. Ah, uh, right. Because there's, I get yeah. it. There was only seven seasons. I get right. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I've I've been following modern Seinfeld, uh, Seinfeld for a while. It's pretty funny. Awesome. All right. Well. Yeah. Um, I just want to remind everybody we are gearing up for another book club book, and that will be Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. We're going to be doing it next week. Um, it's not too late to read it. It only takes a couple hours. If, even if you go through everything, the video, the other book it comes with, lots of great stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of terrific stuff that, that uh, that's there, so uh, definitely uh, take advantage of that. The, the discount code is Rogues Club, all one word all uppercase, and it'll get you 20% off. Anyway, so we want to thank Avdi for writing an awesome book, and we're looking forward to talking about it on the show. And with that, we will wrap up, and we'll catch you all next week.